This week on Q&A, Associated Press reporter Jesse Holland. Mr. Holland talks about his book, The Invisibles, the untold story of African-American slaves in the White House. People often think C-SPAN is funded by the federal government. In fact, we're a nonprofit organization that receives no government funding. As news consumption changes, you can help ensure the future of C-SPAN's unfiltered coverage of national government and politics. We hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible contribution that will support our daily editorial operations. To learn more, visit cspan.org forward slash donate. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Jesse Holland, you write in your brand new book, I decided I would write a second book in 2008 while writing on the then Senator Barack Obama's presidential campaign bus as he made a weekend stopover at his home in Chicago, Illinois. Why did you lead your forward with that? Part of the reason why um, I got into writing about African-American history in Washington, D.C. was because of Barack Obama and his campaign. It brought out a lot of interest in African-American history, having the first African-American president in the White House. And I was lucky enough to be assigned by the Associated Press to cover Obama that weekend. And I literally remember pulling up to... Uh, a couple of blocks away from the Obama's townhouse in Chicago, thinking to myself, what book am I going to write next? And and literally, that's right there in that spot is where it hit me. And I got so excited about the topic, I, I immediately called my editor at that point and said, this is what I want to do next. And she immediately tamped down the enthusiasm. She's like, okay, sit back, think about it, make sure you have a really good idea about what you want to do, but I think it sounds great, and the whole thing just took off from right that, at that point. So what was the idea, and what the, is it? The idea was for, to write a story about the African-American slaves who actually lived inside the White House. Back then, we were so excited. The country was—everyone was still talking about how— great and how unique it would be if an African-American president lived inside the White House. So I said to myself, well, I mean, I understand that's, that would be a great, but he can't have been the first African-American to live there. And, and then I, and that thought process went on. It's like, okay, so who were the first African-Americans to live there? I, we all knew about, at that point, we knew that there were African-American butlers in the White House. But then I thought, well, there had to be someone before them. And so I decided to write a book about the African-American slaves that lived inside the White House with the first presidents. And that's how The Invisibles, the untold story of African-American slavery in the White House, got its start. We have uh, an artist's rendering of the first president's house in New York City. Mm -hmm. And you say in your book that there were nine slaves working for George Washington inside that building. Explain how that happened. Well, as most people know, the first president, George Washington, didn't actually live inside the White House. He actually lived inside executive residences both in New York City and Philadelphia. Now, when this country first started, Congress didn't provide funds for uh, butlers and maids and washerwomen. It didn't provide funds for domestic staff inside the White House. So the first presidents either had to come out of their own pocket and pay for these staffers, or they had to bring in their slaves from their plantations. So the majority of the first presidents, the majority of the founding fathers who became presidents, they were all slave owners. And so they would bring in slaves from their plantations. George Washington did this as well. He brought in slaves to uh, New York City and Philadelphia from Mount Vernon. And they served as the first domestic staff to the United States president. He brought them to New York City, and he brought them to Philadelphia. Uh, now, in both, in both of those places, today we would consider them to be uh, non-slaveholding, say, but back then, slavery was allowed in both, in both Pennsylvania and New York City. So George Washington took advantage of this to bring slaves from Mount Vernon up to New York. But you tell a story 
about what kind of machinations they went through to keep those slaves in the president's house. Right. Well, one of the uh, rules they had in Pennsylvania at this point was that any slave owner who brought a slave across the state lines and into Pennsylvania and kept them there in six months, after six months had passed, those slaves automatically became free. Now, George Washington's no dummy. He doesn't want to keep bringing up people from Mount Vernon to, to Philadelphia, staying six months and having them walk away from him with no compensation at all. So what Washington did was every five months and a couple of weeks, he would decide to take his whole household back to Mount Vernon. And then they would turn around and go back to Pennsylvania, starting that six-month clock all over again. And he did this over and over and over during his time in Pennsylvania, just to ensure that the slaves from Mount Vernon that he brought up there would not get free. Now, none of his slaves were dummies. They sort of knew what he was doing at this point. So that's why one of his slaves took this opportunity to actually escape from George Washington. Her name was Oni Judge. She was one, She was Martha Washington's actual, her personal maid. She had been with the Washingtons her entire life from, she was actually born and, and born into slavery with the Washingtons, and she had been with them her entire life. Well, as the president's second term was winding down, Oni saw that if she ever set foot back at Mount Vernon, she would never escape. So while the Washingtons were packing up to get ready to go back to Mount Vernon, Oni was actually packing her own things. And one day, as they were Washington was eating dinner, she just walked out the back door, walked down to the wharf, got on a ship, and sailed away. It took a couple of days for the Washingtons to realize that she hadn't been packing to go back to Virginia. She was actually packing to escape. But she actually made it all the way up to the Northeast. Uh, where she would actually live out the rest of her life without ever having to go back to Virginia. Now, it's not that the Washingtons didn't want her back. Uh, George Washington actually uh, put advertisements in newspapers trying to get people to, to, to find Oni Judge. And he actually sent a couple of uh, relatives, I'm not going to call them slave catchers, he sent, a, he sent a couple of his relatives to the area where he thought Oni Judge had actually escaped to to see if they could find her, and one of them actually found her. However, by that point, Oni was enough a part of that community where the community decided that they would warn her in advance and let her get away uh, before the, the actual slave catchers showed up. So Oni actually got to live the rest of her life out as a free woman instead of having to go back to Mount Vernon and then serving out as a slave. How much was a slave worth starting in the George Washington era? Well, it depends on who the slave was. Now... Some slaves, most slaves were bought as children. If you, if you didn't buy, if you were going out and you're buying a slave, you had, you had a choice. You can either buy a slave as a child or buy a fully grown slave or somewhere in between. So it depends, the money amount would depend on where, on, on how, on what exactly you wanted. Um, for most house slaves who served as maids, who served as valets, you could, you, they would most likely buy a younger slave so that way they could train them in the way they wanted them to serve around the house. One of George Washington's slaves, William Lee, was actually bought as a young child specifically to serve as a valet for George Washington. And I think in today's dollars, it would have been about $5 for him, but he was bought when he was very young. Now, a fully grown slave, someone who you're going to buy in the field, they could go for much, much more. Someone who was a cook, like, for example, the Hemings family uh, with Thomas Jefferson. Uh, if someone was buying a, a fully grown slave who was trained in French cuisine, as a lot of the Hemings ended up being trained, they would be much more. But for a lot of the presidents, they either inherited their slaves or they bought them as children to work inside the White House. And that way they knew what the slave was taught to do because they taught it to them themselves. What kind of a contract was there with the individual uh, and who was the contract with to own another person? Well, it, it, it depends on where you bought them from. Um, a lot of slaves in the, in the presidential households they ended up 
being the sons and daughters of previous slaves. So a lot of the slaves that the presidents used inside the White House, they didn't really buy them. They, they basically, they, they had grown up on their plantations. But when they went out and bought slaves, the contracts would specifically say, slave X is being purchased by slave owner A from slave owner B. Now, as we went through the records, and I have to say, I had lots of help doing this from the archives and a lot of the presidential uh, plantations and, and around the area. And when we went back and looked through some of those records, there were very few presidents who actually bought slaves while inside the White House. Andrew Jackson actually was one of the few who did. And John Tyler did as well. Now, Andrew Jackson did it openly. He needed some extra help inside the White House to uh, help the household run correctly. So he bought Gracie Bradley here in Washington, D.C. Now, the interesting thing about that story is that Gracie's sister actually worked inside the White House as well, but as a freed woman. But she wanted her sister to work in the White House as well, and she actually recommended to Andrew Jackson that he go buy her. And he did. And Gracie Bradley turned out to be, he bought her as like a cook. But it turns out that Gracie Bradley ends up being the best seamstress that anyone has seen in that area. And she ends up becoming the master seamstress at the Hermitage in, in back in Tennessee. So she ends up living her whole life out with the Jackson family, all because her sister wanted her closer to her in the, in the White House. Um, now, other presidents, like John Tyler didn't want people to know that they were buying slaves because we're getting when you get to Tyler you're getting closer and closer to the Civil War so they didn't really want people to know what they were doing so what Tyler would do is that he would go out and hire an agent a middleman who would then go out and buy slaves and then transfer the slaves to Tyler and Tyler was so adamant that people wouldn't know what he was doing that he refused to use any of the money that he was being paid as president to buy those slaves. He did it out of his personal funds. So presidents had all different types of ways to get these slaves into their hands. Some wanted people to know that they were doing it. Some didn't want to know people they were doing. So they all had their different ways to make sure that these contracts were written got a lot of stories in the book, and I want to show you some video of George W. Bush at the White House with the Obamas with the unveiling of his portrait and see what that triggers in uh, your, your research. When the British burned the White House, as Fred mentioned, in 1814, Dolly Madison famously saved this portrait of the first George W. <laughs> Now, Michelle, <laughs> if anything happens, <laughs> there's your man. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> I, I promise. I'm going straight for it. <laughs> and, and I'm sure it'll be closer right down the stairs. <laughs> I'll get right to it. What are you thinking? Well, <laughs> that's one of the great stories about the White House, that Dolly Madison comes and saves the portrait of uh, George Washington. But I don't think that's exactly what happened, because one of the great things I found out, and there's been great books written about this as well, was Paul Jennings. Paul Jennings was one of the first slaves, and so far, and one of them, sorry, he was one of the first people, period, to write a tell-all memoir about the White House. And Dolly Madison's story about her saving that portrait of George Washington in the White House when the British came to uh, burn it. He said that wasn't exactly what happened, even though that's, it's, it's a great, it was a great story Dolly Madison told. But it wasn't exactly what happened. According to Mr. Jennings, Dolly Madison didn't have anything to do with saving that painting. He and a couple of other workers inside the White House were the ones who came and pulled that painting off the wall, put it in a wagon, and shipped it away to make sure that the British wouldn't keep it. Now, there are some people still today who will argue that given his relationship with the Madisons, and 
I will say Paul Jennings' uh, relationship with the Madisons wasn't exactly the best because they broke several promises to him. But a lot of people say his account of what happened with that painting is probably a little bit more trustworthy than Dolly Madison's account. I tend to believe Mr. Jennings, because, you know, he actually wrote his down and put it down and put it in his book, which is why he said, once again, it's one of the first memoirs written about White House life and, pro- and one of the first books written by a slave that got published inside the United States. And you can read it online. And you, you can read it anywhere. It's, it's a great, you can read it online. You can read it anywhere. It's, it's a great book. Um, I tend to believe him. But I will say he did have a reason to hold a grudge against the Madisons because James Madison had told him uh, before he died that he was going to be free. And after James Madison died, he goes over to Dolly Madison's hands. And at this point, the Dolly Madison is running out of money. She's basically destitute. And instead of following her husband's wishes, to free his slaves after he had died, she starts selling them. One of the few that she had kept there at the end was Paul Jennings. And uh, he expected her to follow uh, President Madison's wishes and free him, but she never did. So I will say that he did have a reason to hold a grudge against her, but I still tend to believe that his story is true. Now, luckily for him, he ends up being sold uh, to Daniel Webster, so he, so, and who eventually frees him. So for him, the story ends up okay at the end, but he was no fan of the Madisons, and especially Dolly Madison, so I can see he probably got a little pleasure in uh, poking a hole into that story that she was getting more and more famous famous with. I want to put on the screen a list of those presidents uh, that had slaves at any time. You mm-hmm. say 12 of 18 uh, had slaves at some point in their life. Those that Owned slaves while they were in office: George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, Andrew Jackson, Jan- John Tyler, James Polk, and Zachary Taylor. And then mm-hmm. those who owned slaves but not in the White House: mm-hmm. Martin Van Buren, William Henry Harrison, Andrew Johnson, <clears throat> and Ulysses S. Grant. Mm-hmm. Who had the most slaves? Oh, um, probably you would look at Washington, Jefferson, and maybe and maybe Taylor. Um, Keep in mind, both Monticello and Mount Vernon were huge money-making plantations. I, I would tend to bet, uh, and both both Washington and Jefferson had in the hundreds at some points in their lives. I would tend to guess that one of those two would be the largest slave owners. But, you know, it's hard to, to count at any one point because keep in mind that when you're owning a slave family, that the slaves are also having children. So those numbers would fluctuate up and down. So, but I still, still, even with that, I would, I would expect that it would be either Washington or Jefferson. You told stories about slaves, body servants of mm-hmm. presidents that literally slept in the room with them. Mm-hmm. Can you remember one of those in particular? Oh, you can go back to William Lee. William Lee was the body servant of George Washington. And everywhere that George Washington went, you would find Billy Lee. Um, I mean, I think it's probably safe to say beyond Phyllis Wheatley at that time, uh, Billy Lee was probably the fo- the most famous African-American in uh, African in, in all of America uh, because you did not find George Washington during the Revolutionary War without Billy Lee. Um, when Washington crossed the Delaware, there, Billy Lee was right there along with him. When General Cornwallis surrendered his sword, Washington and Lee were there together. Lee's job was, during the Revolutionary War, was to make sure Washington had whatever he needed, whether it was a horse, whether it was a telescope, whether it was a gun, whether it was to run messages. Billy Lee was basically Washington's number two. Uh, there's one story that, that's re- that, that I found really interesting uh, in, the, in the book where a group of Southerners and a group of Northerners, looking ahead to a Civil War years in advance, got into an argument in a Revolutionary War camp. And Billy Lee and Washington hear about this argument that's about to break out into a fight. And Washington 
grabs his horse that Billy Lee brings him and he gallops him to the middle of this argument and he breaks it up. But right there behind him is Billy Lee on his horse. Uh, even when all of these major battles are going on and George Washington is out there on a horse, there's Billy Lee right next to him. Now, if something happened to Washington's horse, then Billy Lee would have to give him his horse and then follow along on his feet the, the best he could. But when Washington woke up in the morning, Billy Lee was there. When Washington went to bed at night, it was Billy Lee's job to take off the wig, take off, take his clothes, make sure they were hung, uh, make sure Washington had 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 the food he needed, had the had his Bible. It, it was Billy Lee's job. Well, he, he once again, he's basically Washington's number two to make sure that everything around him, Washington didn't have to think about it. Uh, but keeping up with Washington was a chore. <laughs> It's not like it was easy. So as we go go on in, in history, we find people like Washington, Washington's uh, grandson George Parker Custis Lee, who ends up being Robert Lee's, uh, Rob, ends up being a relative of Robert Lee. He ends up saying that Billy Lee was probably the second best horseman in the country behind George Washington, simply because he had to be to keep up with him. So, the when you say when you start talking about body servants, these were the men who were entrusted with the day-to-day care and keeping of the presidents. They they got their clothes, they got their they got their wigs, they made sure they they got to bed at night, they made sure they got up in the morning. That was their job, and they most of them lived right in the same room where the presidents did. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You were telling a story in front of one of our cameras Back in 2010, uh, almost six years ago, on a book you wrote called Black Men Built the Capital. It's about a minute 20. I want you to see this. And once the Lees had left Arlington House, the Union forces immediately crossed the Potomac and took over the land. And one Union general decided that he never wanted Robert E. Lee to ever return to Arlington House. And the way he ensured that this would not happen was he began burying Union and Confederate soldiers in Robert E. Lee's front yard. That is how Arlington National Cemetery got started. Another way they tried to ensure that General Lee would never return was they gave part of the plantation to some of his freed slaves. And what these freed slaves did with the land was come up with a town called Freedman's Village. As you can see, it wasn't exactly small. They had their own churches. They had their own schools. They even had their own hospital. We've even been able to find a photograph of the people of Freedman's Village in the National Archives. If I, I think if I guess right, that, that that is where the cemetery now took over that Freedman's Village. That cemetery is is Freedman's Village. It's, what, happened, the, what happened to all the, the uh, freed blacks? Well, what happened with that story is that eventually, even though Freedman's Village, once again, was a city unto itself, um, it brought in people from all around the nation. Even Sojourner Truth ended up living in Freedman's Village for a while. But eventually, the views that Freedman's Village had from that hill, from where Arlington National Cemetery is, people discovered it. It's like, <laughs> and they basically were kicked off the land. And it became part of, became, it, it was returned to the Custis Estate and became part of Arlington National Cemetery.
So now, uh, where Freedman's Village stood before is now part of Arlington National Cemetery, uh, Arlington National Cemetery. That there's no trace of the city left. Now, one of the things that I've discovered since I gave that talk, one, one of the churches that was on Freedman's, uh, that was in Freedman's Village was called the, the Old Bell Church. And I was at doing one of these talks about uh, Freedman's Village, and I had this lady come up to me afterward and said, you know, my church has that bell. That bell moved from Freedman's Village to over into Alexandria County. So that church, so some of the people who lived in Freedman's Village, they, they moved basically across the Potomac and down, and they're still in these areas. And I, I run into them every now and then when I'm giving these talks about Washington history. I'll run into someone who says, you know, my, 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 my great-great-grandfather lived in Freedman's Village. So those, the, people, the people and their descendants are still here, but there's no trace of the city left in uh, Arlington National Cemetery. You told us in the book that you started thinking about this in 2008, and you also say in the book that you showed an, an early draft to your father, and he proclaimed this to be a good book. <laughs> is Dad still alive? Dad is. Yes, he is. And what did that mean to you when he said that? Well, I'm originally from a small town in Mississippi called Holly Springs, um, and my parents are both educators, retired educators now. My mom taught English in uh, the um, North Mississippi area for years and years and years. She was actually my seventh and eighth grade English teacher. And my dad uh, taught science and, and industrial arts in the Memphis City Schools, where I was originally, where I grew up in my early years. I grew up in Memphis. And then my parents moved back to Mississippi, where, where we still live on, on the same land that our great, great, great grandfather got after the Civil War. It's, it's a cotton farm. So we're, my family's still there. Um, and being the oldest son, you're sort of expected to go into the family business, but that was never going to happen with me. Um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, and my parents were really encouraged me to follow my dreams and, and, to, and to write. Um, but my dad's a farmer. He, when he stopped, when he stopped uh, teaching full-time, he went into farming full-time. And he reads, but I wouldn't call him a voracious reader. But when he reads something and he says it's good, it's high praise. That's probably one of the greatest compliments I've had in my entire life, that my father read this early draft and said, you know what, this is good. How far have you gone back in genealogy of your own family? Um, I'm sort of the family historian in those areas. I got started when my daughter was born back in 2006. I have a nine-year-old daughter, Rita, and a seven-year-old son, Jesse Holland III. Um, and so I always wanted them to know who their family was because we live here in Washington and, and actually Bowie, Maryland, and most of my family is still in Mississippi. But I want them to know who their people are. So I started tracing down, tracing, tracing our family history, started talking to older relatives and finding out who our people are. So we've gone back to just before the Civil War, um, where the Hollands first bought an acre of land uh, outside of, of then Hudsonville, Mississippi. And my great, 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 let me get, make sure I get all the greats right, great, great, great grandfather, uh, who also happened to be named Jesse Holland. I bought an acre of land and put a store in outside of Hudsonville, Mississippi. And that acre of land is still in my family. That's the one acre of land that we've said that we'll never sell. Anything else might happen to the rest of it. But that's where we can trace our family in Mississippi. That's where we started. And we'll always keep that acre of land. Um, my parents are b both from the North Mississippi area. My mom's from Benton County, and my dad's from Marshall County. And they actually met in high school. Uh, so... My roots are there in, in Mississippi, and I always make sure that I, I can go back. I go back there as much as I possibly can. Ole Miss. Ole Miss. I'm an Ole Miss grad. Um, what year? I came out of Ole Miss in 1994. Um, I actually started Ole Miss in 1989, but I stayed an extra year at Ole Miss because I became editor of the Daily Mississippian, which is the campus newspaper. Uh, for for the you know, 1993-1994 year, uh, it was I I always knew from high school that I was going to do some type of writing, but it was in college where I decided that I was it was I was going to be a journalist. You've been with the AP for how long? 
I've been with the AP since 19, since I left Ole Miss in 1994. I actually started as an intern at Ole Miss, at, a, at a AP in Columbia, South Carolina. I stayed in South Carolina for a few years and then went up to Albany, New York to help cover the Hillary Clinton's first Senate campaign and then came to D.C. in 2000. I've been in D.C. ever since. Back to the book and some of the characters in the book. The horses at the White House. Oh, yes. Um, and I'm, there, there's a great book in this part of the world. It, it, someone maybe maybe have already written it, but Andrew Jackson, American war hero, also a big gambling man. He loved the horses. He brought the, I, I feel pretty safe in saying, he brought the only sporting franchise to the White House. He imported some of his thoroughbreds from Tennessee and brought them up to Washington, D.C. and kept them at the White House. Now, he was also a politician, so he made sure that the horses were always run under someone else's name, but they belonged to him. And Andrew Jackson ran horses at the at racetracks around the D.C. area while still president. He he, he was basically that that he was a he was a stable owner. I, I almost called he was he was almost that heiress Dan Snyder, where he was the major sporting franchise owner in Washington D.C. If you wanted to run a horse, most likely Andrew Jackson's horse was in that race, and he had some incredible thoroughbred. He was known as one of the most powerful racing owners of that time. He basically ran racing in Tennessee. And when he became president, he comes up to Washington. He brings some of those horses with him. He actually builds a new stable on the White House grounds to keep his horses. And we also suspect he brought some of the black jockeys that he kept as slaves in Tennessee up to Washington to stay in that stable with those horses. Now, we haven't been able to identify many of these men, but we do know at least one of them, his name actually happens to be Jesse. And there's a great story where um, Washington, in Washington, where Jackson is running a horse out in the, I believe it's actually out in the Prince George's County area now. And his vice president, Martin Van Buren, He's actually wasn't quite the sporting man <laughs> that, that Jackson was. So Jackson is trying to get one of the horses under control. He has his high-spirited horse, and the jockey isn't controlling him the way that Jackson wants him to. So Jackson sort of moves toward the track. And Van Buren, not really knowing what's going on, I, I expect, is moving toward the track as well. So Jackson and the jockey finally get the horse under control and Jackson backs up. Van Buren does not. And so you think about it, you have a man sitting on a horse in front of the starting gates of a race. Jackson ends up having to get Van Buren and move him back. And that one scene follows Jackson's vice president for the rest of his life, that he that Jackson has to pull him out of the way of the horses like he's a child. Cementing him in some people's mind is Jackson's puppet. And he fought that follows him for the rest of his career. You write about George, the slave. You write about Monkey Simon. Uh, Monkey Simon's a, a, a book all into himself. Uh, Monkey Simon was the greatest black jockey of his time. Four feet, six inches tall? <laughs> He's a jockey. he got to be small to be on the horses. Um, he was the one jockey, along with the horse, Maria, that Jackson couldn't beat. He tried over and over. He sent different horses after him, and he never could beat him. Um, and Monkey Simon's probably one of the first people that we know that publicly got into trash talking with Andrew Jackson and got away with it. Now, keep in mind, Andrew Jackson was a man known for his temper. He would duel. He would fight. 
he would he wasn't he was a rough and ready kind of guy. But because of his victories over Jackson over and over, Monkey Simon would publicly tease him. He would talk about how Jackson looked. He wrote even an embarrassing song about Jackson that he was singing. But because of his skill, Jackson never retaliated. And even going toward the end of his life, one of the things that Jackson would say is that that one of the things he regretted that he never, ever got to beat Monkey Simon and Maria, which was the name, which was the horse. He never got to beat them. And, but we we do discover later on that he and Simon become friends. And they at least become friends. Um, I don't know if he ends up uh, owning Simon. We're not quite sure whether he actually owned Simon. Uh, he actually bought Simon in sometime in the future, or he rented him. But we do know that they had relations later on, and that the two end up, end up at least talking once or twice. So he probably was the only living person who said something bad to Jackson, to Jackson's face, and was able to get away with it. From your book and another uh, slave and who was involved in horses, Ephraim mm-hmm. complained to Jackson one day that he had been attacked by a white man named Grayson in Lebanon, Tennessee. Now, Andrew Jackson had, how many slaves did he have total? Oh, up, up in the hundreds at some point. So, and he liked having slaves. And he, yeah, it, it's, one of those, it's one of those weird things that we look, when we look at it now, he actually owned people. But he had affection for the people that he owned. He was not a, one of the slave owners who was known for mistreating his slaves. And he would stand up for them when someone else attacked them. Let me read what the, this, this man is talking about, Jackson. Ephraim is talking about him. And you're quoting here. Jackson fourth went, went to Lebanon, Tennessee, beat up. Grayson and beat him up with a heavy cane so severely that he was laid up for four or five weeks and then warned him if he ever touched Ephraim again or any other servant of his, he would shoot him at sight. Jackson stood up for his people. Uh, and this wasn't the only time Jackson actually had did something like that. You, you knew that if you messed with anybody that Jackson liked, that Jackson would come for you. And that even in, that included political allies that went all the way to Jackson's slaves. Now, Jackson called them servants, but they were his slaves. But if you got anywhere close to mistreating someone that belonged to Jackson, you had to deal with Jackson himself. Uh, one of the one of another story about that is that one of Jackson's men, uh, one of his slaves, got charged with murder because of a fight at a Christmas party. Um, there was a, there was some alcohol involved, and the the slaves of two different plantations get into an argument, and someone dies. So some of Jackson's political enemies in Tennessee decided they would charge Jackson's slave with murder. Now, most of the time, you would expect something like that to happen, and the slave owner would try to negotiate, would try to uh, get this to go away. You wouldn't expect him to do what Jackson did, which was tell them that, first of all, I'm a lawyer and you need to prove to me this case. And if you don't prove this case, then you're going to make this go away because you are not going to use my slaves to attack me for a political reason. So Jackson himself took over that case and made sure that his people were not treated unfairly, and they ended up getting off because it was it was it was a general melee. It wasn't actually one person attacking the another, and so Jackson ends up uh, getting his slaves, uh, getting the charges dropped against against his slaves. He went above and beyond what you would expect a slave owner to do for his slaves back in that time period. Let's go through a bunch of uh, stories quickly because we're running out of time. William Andrew Johnson. Uh, William Andrew Johnson was a slave of Andrew Johnson. First of all, where did he get his name? Uh, he got he got his name from the person he was working for. Now, that's one of those areas where you, we have to be careful because we don't know for a fact because we don't ha- we ha- we don't we don't know the genealogy as well as we should. But we know that he worked for Andrew Johnson. We know that he lived with Andrew Johnson. 
we don't know if he was related to Andrew Johnson. That's never been proven one way or the other. Um, but he was, he was, he was, he was there with Andrew Johnson his entire life. Um, Johnson's, the Johnsons were also from Tennessee. Um, and we could see from, from some of the information we, we were able to find, he came up to uh, Washington with the Johnsons and went back to Tennessee with them after they were, after he left the White House. And he is one of the few slaves that we know that was actually honored by a U.S. president. Um, after Johnson died uh, and later on in his life, he actually came, William Andrew Johnson came back to Washington and got a tour of the White House and got a silver-tipped cane as a gift from President Roosevelt that he was able to take home with him. So we know for sure that he, well, we know pretty well that he's probably the only slave that's actually been honored by a U.S. president. You say that James Buchanan, the president, uh, right near the Civil War time, uh, freed a couple of slaves for political reasons? Well, keep in mind that once we start getting close to the Civil War, that the... Um, that the the press and the public, especially up north, are getting a lot more squeamish about slaveholders and presidents who are slaveholders. So Buchanan decided, since he owned slaves, Buchanan decided that he needed to get some of his slaves out of his name. So he decides then to, uh, he transfers some of them to his sister, who then eventually frees him. But he, we, when we get to Buchanan, we're starting to find out that the presidents are being a lot more careful about publicly being slave owners. And they start divesting themselves of any public holdings of slavery. It surprises a lot of people to learn that U.S. Grant had slaves. Yeah, it, 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 one of the things I will admit, it also surprised me as well, because you wouldn't think that the man who's put in charge of the U.S. Army during the Civil War would actually be a slave owner himself, but he was. But he actually inherited his slaves through his marriage. So he didn't actually go out and buy slaves. He married a woman whose family owned slaves. And one of the things that Grant did himself, he personally freed that slave. He, we actually have, there's actually a copy of the letter which he wrote, which gave the slave his freedom. That shows where he was in his mind about slavery. Now, that doesn't mean he, that for a while he was a slave owner simply because of his marriage, but he took it upon himself to actually free those slaves. You say that James Monroe was the first president to actively suggest to eliminate slavery, but it seems to me in reading your book, a lot of presidents said they were going to eliminate slavery, and not until they died or their wives died were they ever re, uh, freed. Well, one of the things that I saw through, throughout this entire timeline is that most of the founding fathers and the early presidents knew in their minds that slavery was wrong. They knew it. But they weren't willing to inconvenience their own lives to make that come true. Um, so what a lot of them did was to say that when I die, my slaves will become my slaves will be free, or when my wife dies to take care of their their spouse, or when my wife dies, the slaves would become free. Uh, they they didn't do it during their lifetimes. But they want. The, but since they knew, and I think it's pretty clear, most of them knew that it was wrong. They didn't want to perpetuate it to another generation. Some did, and one of the things we have to keep in mind as well here: they also, while trying to be kind, put their wives in a pretty bad situation because the uh, the president dies first, and you tell all of the slaves that you will be free once my wife dies and the president's gone and the only thing standing between those slaves and their freedom is one woman's life. And this is the woman you're cooking for. This is the woman that you're cleaning for. A simple accident gives you your freedom. So a lot of the first ladies, after finding, after finding out the situation they were in, they sort of started moving toward the, the, making their slaves free quicker 
than letting it go, letting them wait until they die. The story of John Tyler, his fiance, I think she was about 24 years old, on the ship Princeton, Princeton. <laughs> and Secretary of the Navy, Secretary of State, died. Her father died, but there's a slave named Armistead. Mm -hmm. Explain that story. Well, the Princeton at that time was supposed to be one of the Navy's crowning achievement. It had aborted two of the biggest cannons that actually had been made at that time. So to show off this, this, this ship, they're sailing it up and down the Potomac, and they're inviting members of Congress and the president and people aboard the ship to let them see this great creation of the U.S. Armed Forces. So they're coming back down the Potomac, and they get near Mount Vernon, and Tyler's aboard the ship, and his slave Armistead is aboard the ship as well. And they, they're going past Mount Vernon, and they decide that to honor the nation's first president, they're going to fire the cannon. Now, Tyler's below decks, and a song is being sang that Tyler really wants to hear. So they tell people they're going to fire the cannon, and Tyler wants to hear this song. But Armistead decides to go upstairs to see them fire the cannon. But unfortunately, the firing of the cannon becomes a misfire, and the cannon actually explodes on board. Tyler is spared because he's below decks. But the people around the cannon, are most of them are immediately killed uh, because the cannon actually exploded. And so shrapnel is being shot all across the upper decks. Um, and as you said, several members of the administration are killed. Uh, during the during this accident, once again, including Armistead, who's the personal servant. But you tell the story beyond that of what happened when the hearses went back to the White House, right? So th this this is this is, is an example of of how they treated slaves during that time. The people are taken off of the boat. the The deceased are taken off of the boat, and they're put in these beautiful hearses with these cherry topped uh, coffins. What does Armistead get? Armistead gets a pine box. And there's a, there's a scene described in a newspaper of all of these hearses heading back toward the Capitol. And at the end, there's this hearse with a pine box that you see veer off to another direction. He, didn't, he doesn't get to, lay, to, to lie in state in the government buildings in Washington. He gets sent home to his family in a pine box. Everyone else who dies gets honored. Once again, he gets a pine box and sent home to his family with no fanfare at all. That's just that's an example of how little the slaves were regarded, even if you worked for the most powerful man in the United States. That shows how little they were regarded by the power structure of Washington in that time. I don't want to overcharacterize it, but you seem to be a positive person, uh, a smile on your face. You're telling these stories. Right. But I want to show you a guy that uh, we've had here several times, haven't seen him in a while, uh, was so angry about what happened in this country. Mm -hmm. and he talked about something that you wrote about. Uh, this is Randall Robinson. He's moved mm -hmm. to St. Kitts because of, he says, because of the anger he has about the way blacks were treated in this country. Let's watch what he had to say about okay. it. You walk into the Capitol and you see all of these paintings and all of this stuff uh, uh, describing the stages of American history. Nothing. No Douglas, no Tubman, no Truth, nothing. But who built the Capitol? Hmm. Who put atop it the Statue of Freedom? Who cast it? Slaves did. But America has, has wiped it from its memory. How angry has this made you? There were some times during the writing of this book where I just had to sit back and say, okay, this is what happened. You have to deal with it. You have to tell the story. But that's the important part. I mean, just as Randall Robson just said, that's the important part here, that these stories are now being told. Um, anyone who doesn't know their history is doomed to repeat it. 
by getting these slaves' name out into the public eye, by having people read these stories, it's reclaiming a little of that respect that we were just talking about. Um, Armstead gets sent off in a pine box. No one knows his name. No one cared about his name. But maybe by writing these stories down, maybe by talking about these stories, we get a little of the respect back for these men and women that was denied them during their life. How much did the slaves at the time build the White House? How much of it? Oh, the construction crew for the White House was a by large a large portion of it was was by was built by slaves. I mean, that's what they did. I mean, you keep in mind back then Washington was basically a swamp. There was no workforce here. The only major workforce in the Washington area comes from the plantations in Virginia and Maryland. So they went out and they rented slaves to help build the White House, the Capitol, a lot of the government buildings around here. Um, James Hoban, slave owner from South Carolina, he actually brought some of his slaves up from South Carolina to help build the White House. I mean, this is what, this, there, there's no way to sugarcoat. This is what, this is how Washington got built. This is how a lot of the important buildings in Washington got built before the Civil War. The, slave, the slaves were easily accessible, cheap labor. And unlike freedmen, the slaves couldn't complain about their working conditions. And they also weren't getting the money, the money, they weren't getting money for their actual work, their slave owners getting, so they couldn't go anywhere because they couldn't afford to. So a lot of the, when you look at the White House and the Capitol, a lot of the work there was done, not, not all of it, but a lot of the, the, the manual labor that was done to put up the White House and the Capitol, a good portion of it was done by slaves. And like I said, part of the reason for writing books like this is to make sure that these stories get told. A lot of times when we talk about history in, in Washington, D.C., we talk about the founding fathers. We talk about the great politicians. We talk about the, the great city leaders. But we don't talk about the people who make the city work. And the first group of people who made this city work were slaves. But a lot of us don't know their names. And once again, by writing a book like this, we begin to take back some of that dignity that was taken away from these slaves by people actually knowing who they were and how they lived. As you say, uh, 10 of the first 12 presidents did not have slaves. The two that didn't, the Adamses. The Adamses. John Adams and his son, John Quincy Adams. But you, you dropped a little nugget in your book about the fact that when the White House was first constructed uh, in the 1800, at 1800, when, when uh, John Adams moved into the White House, there was no bathroom in there. Right. <laughs> the, the, the White House wasn't exactly the best place to live when it, when it, when it first opened. Uh, and, I mean, both John Adams was not very happy to actually be in Washington back at that time. He was happy to be president. But when he moved into the White House, it was not exactly, it, it, it was finished, but it wasn't quite done. <laughs> it, was, it was where he could live in it. But keep in mind, he didn't have the slaves that everyone else had that, to, to finish the work on the White House. So he ended up, it, it, I think his wife ended up calling this huge drafty mansion, and he ends up having to bathe in the Potomac. It, it, was, it wasn't exactly what we see now as the White House, but it got there. You also talk about uh, uh, some kind of a structure being built where I think slaves lived right in the spot where Andrew Jackson's statue is across from the White House. Well, when they were constructing the White House, the uh, slaves who had to build the building had to live somewhere. So they built shanties over, over, over around um, Lafayette Park. This is where the, the workmen actually lived. And so th this is one of the things that I think would be really interesting. I may try it myself or maybe I can give somebody else the idea. There were quite a few other buildings around the White House that aren't there now. I would love to see a map of where all of these little bit. Like, there was an ice house at the at the. There were stables. There were these shanties for uh, for uh, for slaves to live in while they were working in the White House. There were houses for freedmen who worked on the White House. They were all on the White House campus. But we look around today; they're they're all gone. Um, 
the white what what the White House looks like today and what it looked like back then, that whole area is completely different. It'd be great to see somebody map out all the places that were there. Talking earlier about presidents that hid the fact that they bought slaves when they're in the White House. James Polk, you say, bought 19 slaves when he was in the White House. Right. Polk came in and bought all of these slaves while he was inside the White House. It was he he was one of the few people that decided that he didn't that he needed the extra help while he was here in Washington. Now, he had slaves of his own back in, on his plantation, but he needed... In Tennessee. Yeah, in Tennessee. And he needed help while he was here in Washington. So he decided that he was going to buy more and bring them into... and bring, and train them to, to work inside the White House. What's the story of Elias Polk? I assume he was named after his master, but he was a conservative wanting to run for office? Well, when Polk... Elias Polk was one of the faithful slaves of James Polk. And when he goes back to Tennessee, Elias Polk becomes a political figure. He decides that he wants to run for office as a conservative. Now, even today, there are not as many conservatives in the African-American community running for office as there are liberals. Elias Polk was one of the first conservatives that ran for office as an African-American. And as you might expect, that wasn't very popular back in Tennessee at that time because a lot of people saw him as standing on the side of the slave owners instead of the, the slave owners and the former slave owners instead of being with the people. So while he was a big person in politics back then, it doesn't seem like he was very popular among his own people and among the regular people. Is there anybody, you, well, let me just ask you, if you give, we're going to give a gold star out to somebody that had slaves that lived up to what you would call a human, um, eventually, you know, letting go eventually, making them free, who would get the gold star among, and who wouldn't? Who would be the worst? Uh, I would have to say, uh, I would have to give Andrew Jackson a gold star, not because he freed as many of the slaves as he should have, but he actually was willing to put himself on the line for his slaves. And he actually made sure that slaves like Gracie that he bought here in Washington, after he died, Gracie and her husband were able to stay on the hermitage and become parts of that community. And Jackson time and time again stood up for the slaves who worked for him and the freedmen who worked for him. Um, even during the snow ride here in D.C., there was a African-American freedman working in the White House for Jackson, and the mobs came for him, and Jackson said no. So the snow uh, riot was after Beverly Snow. Right, right, who right. Was, who was Beverly Snow? Uh, he actually owned a eating establishment here, here in Washington, D.C., and there, there's, there's different talks about how that riot started. Uh, one, one discussion is that uh, the riot began because of a drunk uh, slave who took an axe and went after um, went after a household, and then it just snowballed from there. Uh, but what ended up happening is that a lot of African-American establishments in Washington, D.C. end up being destroyed during this riot. Uh, and a lot of African-Americans in Washington end up being killed. And one of the people they went after worked for Andrew Jackson in the White House. But Jackson said, no, you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't take him. We're almost out of time. And before a, a last question to you, if you had to put your finger on one source of information that helped you the most in trying to find these stories, what would that be? Oh, the Library of Congress. I mean, there... Stories like these are always found within the margins. Very few of these slaves got to tell their own stories. So to find their stories, you have to go back and read the owner's stories. You have to go back and read the owner's ledgers. You have to go back and read the information that their owners left behind. And for me, the greatest repository of that information came from the Library of Congress. Now, I don't want to give short shrift to any of the people who gave me help at the presidential plantations. I was surprised at how willing they were to work with me to find this information. But 
everyone I came across at any of the presidential plantations from Mount Vernon to the Hermitage in Tennessee, they were all willing to open up their records and let me look at them. But the majority of my work ended up coming from the Library of Congress. And I can tell you the best people in the world are librarians. They were, they want you there. They want you there to work with them. They, they will give you whatever help in the world that, that, that you need. And I can say this because my mom retired as a librarian. The name of the book is The Invisibles. Uh, the untold story of African-American slaves in the White House. Our guest is AP reporter Jesse J. Holland, Jr., and we thank you very much. Thank you. transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qnda.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts.